Episode 9, Chief's Blanket. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 16th, 2006 podcast from the Kansas State Historical Society. Each quarter, curators select six artifacts for the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. This podcast takes a closer look at these artifacts and finds out the story behind the story. In the following interview, Laura Van Orsdale, curator at the Kansas Museum of History, discusses the complex construction of a prized Native American blanket. She also debunks a gunshot theory related to a hole in the blanket. Good afternoon, Laura Van Orsdale. Good afternoon, Merle Riedel. I'm going to ask you some questions about the Chief's Blanket that you wrote for your cool things. Okay. Um, In your article, you refer to this blanket as a first phase Ute-style Chief's Blanket. Um, What does first phase mean? Was there a second phase or a third phase? (laughs) Yes, there was. Um, This is called a first phase Ute-style Chief's Blanket. Um, There were actually three phases. Uh, Some people discuss other phases, and of course, um, as with any artistic style, there were also variations. Um, These Chief's Blankets were first made um, by the Navajo people um, starting probably in the late 18th century, um, by eight, about 1800, uh, they had established the style of this blanket, which is, is the first phase, and that is the this, this stripes of brown and white, and then also with it, the blue stripes in there. And there were some variations, some blankets had red in them, that kind of thing. Um, but the first phase lasted until about 1850, and by about 1850, you start seeing blankets um, of the second phase, which have more red mm-hmm. introduced into them, and uh, they have more rectangular designs in the pattern. Um, and then eventually in the third phase, which actually the three phases happen um, pretty close together, um, but the third phase is you start seeing more diagonal elements, um, starting to show more influence from other uh, blankets that are Um, appearing from other locations in the southwest in Mexico. Uh, Which chief did this blanket belong to? Well, actually, Merle, this didn't belong to a specific chief. No? (laughs) No. Um, Chief's blanket is actually sort of a misnomer. These blankets were made by very talented um, weavers. They were made... Um, by of the finest quality materials, and they were also um, very expensive. They were uh, generally made to be traded, and they were very popular with other tribes. Um, the The horizontal stripe design was very popular, um, particularly with Plains tribes. And the Ute tribe to the north of the Navajo was particularly uh, interested in this this blanket, which is. Um, one of the reasons why it's called a Ute-style blanket. Um, but the blankets, because they also took about between 6 to 12 months to produce, um, it wasn't something that the average ordinary person could own. It was something that was very expensive. And um, so only wealthy and successful individuals would actually be able to own them. So um, they sort of developed the name of cheese blankets because as um, more American traders, more people, traders like that were coming into the community, they were seeing the established individuals wearing these, and so they sort of came up with the name Chief's Blanket for them. So it's like a Chief's Level blanket. Yeah, I guess you could call it more like that. Okay. Um, This blanket is is believed to be of Navajo origin. Mm -hmm. What elements of the blanket, um, what what parts of the blanket tell you it's Navajo? Okay, well, the design overall... um, 
indicates that it's Navajo. But if you look at the blanket closely, you can see a lot of um, the way it's constructed it, uh, point towards the Navajo weaving. Um, one of the things that pops out right away is if you look at the edge, it looks sort of like it, the edge is braided. And because of the loom they were using, the upright loom, um, the blankets actually have four selvages instead of just two, like a standard loom that we're familiar with. And what they would do is sort of a twine, uh, twine side selvage where they would actually t twine two cords into the weaving as they were doing it. And hmm. you see that on all four edges if you look at them. Um, and then another way to tell that it's Navajo is that in the corners where those twines meet, um, they would tie it in a certain way. And this blanket has the, the Navajo style of twining. Different groups of people, different tribes would do it differently. Um, and this one seems to indicate Navajo. Uh, one other thing, uh, if you notice, if you look at the website, you'll notice a close-up of the weaving. And you can see from that it's very fine weaving. But um, one of the other things you'll notice, too, is what's called a lazy line. And that is not really indicating that the weaver was really lazy when they were doing it. Um, what that means is that they're actually weaving this not, you know, straight across. Each weft isn't going straight across. What they're doing is they're weaving it in parts. Um, and they're doing it, uh, they're doing one section at a time. And the reason why it's diagonal is because if you stopped at the same um, warp or the line running up and down, you would have a space there um, as you went up. So you do it diagonally so that you can maintain the structural integ integrity of the blanket. Um, so really the blanket, the design overall, when you see it from far away, it looks um, very simple, like a very simple design, but when you actually get to looking at it in detail, it's very interesting to see how it's constructed and, and how it's actually put together. The blanket was discovered at Shawnee Indian Mission in Kansas City in 1981. Um, how do you think it got to Shawnee Indian Mission? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, like many pieces of museum collections, we're not um, exactly sure how that happened. But um, in this case, we are pretty confident we know how it happened. Um, it was actually found in a box with another blanket um, from the same area. It's a Saltillo-inspired blanket. Um, made not by Native Americans, but probably by Hispanic settlers in the area. And um, with the, these two blankets, there was a note that said that the Navajo blankets had been acquired um, by James H. Carter on an overland trip to California. And we were able to do some research into Mr. Carter, and we found an obituary for him. And he apparently was born in Boonville, Missouri, about 1836. And um, his family moved to Westport, Missouri, when he was still quite young. And Westport was a ride on the Santa Fe and Oregon Trail, you know, very, a lot of these trails going through right about the 18, starting in the 1840s, well, the Santa Fe Trail had been a little longer than that, but really going through that area. And when he was about 15, he um, decided to run away from home and join a wagon train headed out to Fort Laramie, Wyoming. Apparently, there was too much adventure going on close to home for him. Um, he had such a good time on that trip that he eventually became a freighter and a postal carrier, and um, according to his obituary, made about 13 trips in his life across the plains. Now, we don't know for sure um, if he was traveling only on the California Trail, on the Oregon Trail, um, or if he was on the Santa Fe Trail as well. There were people transporting mail and goods on both trails, um, and a lot of traveling going on. Um, but uh, we do know one other interesting thing about Mr. Carter, and that is uh, that he um, was later, when he was um, an elderly man, was asked to drive a, a freight wagon for a celebration there in um, Missouri, and he refused to do so because they only gave him mules to pull the cart. So apparently he mm. was very, um, you know, very set in his ways about how you should drive a freight wagon. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> Often, um, Native American objects, uh, sort of of this caliber of craftsmanship, are embodied with some sort of spiritual meaning. Do you, do you know that does this blanket? Um, possess any specific spiritual meaning? Not that I know of. It's possible. Um, like you said, a lot of times something that would involve six to you know twelve months worth of work would have some sort of meaning. Uh, it's not like a ghost shirt with the the ghost dance and Wavoka and, and all of that, where the ghost shirt was supposed to protect you from bullets. Um, uh, this is we're not sure um, if that's the case here, but but it, these blankets were meant to be worn. They were worn over the shoulder, and actually that's that horizontal stripe design. Um, was intended to be completed when you're wearing it because it would it would come together as you were wearing it. Um, so the design itself may have had some sacred significance, but um, the blankets themselves, um, as far as we know, as far as I know, are were meant uh, to be worn. There's a strange hole in mm -hmm. the uh, blanket yes, with brown stains around it. Some <laughs> staff members speculate that it's a bullet hole with blood stains. <laughs> Do you support this theory? Well, um, I've heard that some people say they think it's a bullet hole. Some people think that maybe it's an arrow hole. Um, I think all kinds of speculation could be made about that. It is definitely very suspicious. Um, however, I hate to say it, but uh, we have recently taken the blanket to a conservator and she suspects that it's it may be rat urine or mouse urine wow. and not blood. She's going to do some analysis, so stay tuned. Maybe uh, if we find out differently, we'll uh, be sure to, to update the website with that information. Great. Well, uh, Laura, thanks for telling us about the Chief's Blanket. Sure. That concludes Episode 9, Chief's Blanket. Join me in two weeks when I interview curator Blair Tarr about a papier-mâché horse that may have participated in the 1893 Cherokee land rush. This podcast is a production of the Kansas State Historical Society. Oh, 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 o